Welcome to this first ever episode of Southern Wonder, a forum for intellectual curiosity in the New South. If you're always wondering why, you've come to the right place. Today, we're talking Russia. It's the biggest country by land area in the world, stretching from the Sea of Japan all the way to the Baltic. It straddles two continents and is home to a diverse multi-ethnic population. Russia's history traditionally starts all the way back in the year 862. Today, we're going to take a whirlwind tour of Russia, past and present. Here with me to discuss the hows and whys of the biggest country on the planet is Dr. Steve Sable, professor of history at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. Thank you for being here, Dr. Sable. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. All right. I think I have way more here than we're going to have time for, so let's go ahead and get started. I'm interested in hearing a little bit about what sparked your interest in Russian history. Oh, that's a... That, that takes me back uh, a long way, actually, to when I was an undergraduate. Like so many, I was um, uncertain what I wanted to major in and uh, what direction I wanted to take in school. And um, I took a course called Western Civilization since um, uh, 1500 or something like that. And um, the teacher at the time um, decided she was tired of, of not making it to the 20th century. And as a consequence, she started with the First World War, which uh, sparked some interest, and I became very interested in just Russia's role in the First World War. And then the man who really became my, uh, my intellectual mentor, uh, my professional mentor, is a fellow uh, named Dr. David Crow. And I took his, uh, his Soviet history class, and it was as though the candy store had opened. I mean, I just couldn't get enough of it. I read this past year the New Yorker writer Ian Fraser's book, Travels in Siberia, mm-hmm. and he talks about how his love of Russia is kind of a fraught, complicated thing because it's a real love, but it's also clear-eyed about some of the frustration in loving Russia. And I was wondering if your interest in Russia is similarly complicated. It, it is because in many respects, um, the Russian people are, are just a wonderful people, uh, generous um, welcoming, uh, and yet at the same time, it's 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 such a large country and so diverse that we we oftentimes forget how difficult it, it is as a place, and its history is so complex, and and it just opening those puzzles um, are part of the the fun of studying Russia, um, and yet at the same time we sometimes scratch our head and say, this, this, why are they doing it this way? And um, uh, Hedrick Smith, who was a New York Times journalist, wrote a book um, that came out during the Cold War, early 1980s, called The Russians. And he basically made the comment, we, we want to understand why the Russians behave like Russians. And it's a puzzle I don't think that we'll ever completely put together. You know, when you think about a country that spans 10, 11 time zones, I mean, it's, it's massive. Um, and, you know, you, once you get outside the, the large urban areas outside of Moscow or outside of uh, Petersburg, um, you get into what at times feels like you're back in the 19th century, just with the homes and the way that people behave. And um, you, you sometimes then scratch your head and say, how could this have been a Cold War rival to us when, when people are still using outhouses, you know, for, for they don't have indoor plumbing. Um, and so it's just constantly... Uh, I'm constantly surprised by Russia, fascinated by Russia, frustrated by Russia. Let's get into that history a little bit. Obviously, we're not going to be able to go very in-depth into the whole thousand-year history, but let's try to get a big-picture view. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So I read probably on wikipedia.com that Russia's history begins in 862 AD, and that is a very specific year. Mm -hmm. Why was that year considered the beginning? There's a a medieval document uh, called the Russian Primary Chronicle. And the story within the Primary Chronicle is that's when the the people, um, the Slavic peoples, invited um, three Scandinavian brothers, uh, Rurik and his two brothers, to come in and rule over them in 862, um, eventually setting the foundation for what becomes Kiev and Rus. And so based on the Primary Chronicle and the Scandinavian-Slavic relations in that period, it gives us um, a time frame from which we can say when um, Russia as a, um, a place starts. But the, the idea of, of, of Rus and Russia itself is far more complex because the three Scandinavian brothers, although they were Swedish, came from a tribe called Rus. And so a major debate in Russian history is where does the name come from? Where they, you know, is it really a Slavic root or is it a Scandinavian root? And this is uh, often called the Norman controversy in Russian history, and it's, it's still debated. And Russian nationalists will tell you, well, of course they were Russian, and they were always Russian, and this is just mythological history written down in the Primary Chronicle. Um, others will say, no, you know, we have evidence of Rurik and we have evidence of Scandinavians going down the Volga and going to Byzantium, becoming uh, Varangians and so forth. And so it's, it gives us a starting point, but it's not really what we would regard as, as Russia. It's not something we would recognize as Russia, but it's a date that they can identify. For a long time, there was infighting between rival groups and a constant threat of invasion, mm-hmm. and it was unclear whether Russia would emerge as a state at all. When when did the Russia we would recognize today begin to take shape? Um, probably around the time, actually, of uh, Ivan uh, Grozny, Ivan the Terrible. Um, but certainly the construct, in part because of the expansion that had begun out of Muscovy. Um, after the Mongol um, invasion, you have um, a couple hundred years of, of the, what's known as the Mongol yoke. Um, what survived, though, was the church and Eastern Orthodoxy, the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, and as a consequence of that, um, after uh, the, the, the Mongols are, are basically... Um, that empire, the Golden Horde, starts to wither on the vine, you start to have um, the princes of Muscovy expanding outward by the mid-16th century, taking Kazan and um, Astrakhan, which was uh, one of the capitals. Um, But certainly by the time we get then to um, the time of troubles, as it's called, in in the uh, early, uh, well, late uh, 16th, early 17th century, uh, in 1613 is when Mikhail Romanov is elected in, um, to become the czar. Um, he doesn't use necessarily the title, but he becomes the, uh, the monarch. Then um, over the next hundred years, um, th- what we would regard as the state uh, is solidified, particularly under Peter the Great. Um, but when he dies in um, 1725, he leaves a period of some chaos. So you can argue that um, by the time of Peter the Great, what we would recognize as Russia. By this time, they've already sent um, the Cossacks east into Siberia. They haven't yet moved into the Crimea or the Caucasus or Central Asia, but they've they've expanded eastward. Uh, That's when you can say we start to recognize something that would resemble the Russian state. 
uh, by the time of Peter the Great. One feature, so so by then we're getting into imperial Russia. Is mm-hmm. that right? We yes. can say that. And so one feature of imperial Russia was serfdom. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that, how it worked? It's a very, very complex um, topic, to be honest with you. Um, how yeah. does it compare to, like, American slavery mm-hmm. is one thing that we're familiar with in some ways. What, how does it compare to that? It, um, in principle, serfs could not be bought or sold, but they, they went with the land. The land could trade hands. Um, that doesn't mean that there, weren't, uh, there wasn't evidence of, of serfs um, being sold in, in s- some capacity. Um, but serfdom didn't exist everywhere within the empire. There were different types of serfs. The, the church had serfs. The state had serfs. You had nobility. The boyars who had, had serfs as well. Um, so it was, a, it was a form of unfree labor, but it wasn't um, as widespread or as pernicious. But at the same time, it was also it consistently stifled Russian economic growth. Um, every 10 years, for example, there'd be a redivision of the land. And so you might have, say, a serf family that had been working land for some time. Um, that land could be um, taken away from them and they'd be put on other land, or they could be taken from the land and sent to work in, in uh, mining um, industry, for example. So it was, it, it's, it's comparable in the fact that the serfs did not have sovereignty over their own lives. Um, and yet at the same time, because they, they weren't technically slaves, they weren't necessarily bought and sold, they certainly didn't have uh, liberty of movement, uh, liberty of their own economic lives, and these sorts of things. Uh, the state did not um, intervene to educate or to provide mechanisms for serfs to better themselves. But at the same time, there were some opportunities, some nobility were not, um, they wanted educated um, serfs, so they would provide um, industrial training, for example, or agrarian training, but they were more the rare. Uh, nobility than than you might think. Was, uh, was there ever an ethnic or racial element to serfdom at all? Uh, chiefly, it was Russian peasants. Um, as the empire moved east, um, for example, when they moved into the Caucasus, they didn't impose serfdom in what becomes uh, what is Georgia. They didn't impose serfdom in the the Muslim areas, um, in what becomes Azerbaijan, for example. They certainly didn't impose serfdom. Um, in the east, in, in Central Asia, among the Kazakhs or the Uzbeks, or the, or those, um, those groups. Um, so it was really um, a, a Russian peasant um, who, was, who was going to be a serf, not somebody else of the, uh, uh, of the empire. And so we use Russian to describe everyone, in people from the country of Russia, but it's mm-hmm. also a, an ethnic signifier, right? right? How is it used today in Russia? Is it still that ethnic signifier, or has it broadened? No, it's um, it's 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 also a complex picture. Um, you had you have Russians um, who are Slavic, whose mother tongue would be Russian, who were Eastern Orthodoxy uh, or Eastern Orthodox, um, but it is a multinational empire, and by that in the the uh, Tsarist census of 1897, there were about 180 different nationalities living within the empire, speaking a multitude of languages, practicing a multitude of, of religions with different economic structures. And so we tend to use the term Russian as a synonym. We certainly did during the Cold War. Russian and Soviet were synonyms. But 
you could be a Soviet, but not Russian. Um, you could be a Russian, but maybe not Soviet, particularly if you're living in Brighton Beach, New York, for example. So we, the, the, the state itself today, the, the Russian Federation, has a, uh, more than 100 different nationalities. So it still has remained this multinational state to this day. The majority of the population, though, is Russian. I'm going to skip over a massive, massive swath of Russian history and skip straight to the revolution. Okay. Um, it, during the imperial times, was all the power concentrated in the hands of the Tsar? Yes and no. Um, the, the, there are a couple of revolutions that are um, oftentimes ignored in Russian history. We all focus on 1917. But the 1905 revolution, uh, the Tsar issued um, what's known as the October Manifesto, in which he granted um, to, the, to the, the people of the empire certain liberties, um, freedom of speech, freedom of uh, movement to some extent, um, certainly freedom of the press. In fact, there was a blossoming of, of media uh, at the time. Um, he also granted the first constitution, as well as the creation of, of the Duma, which becomes the, the Russian parliament. Um, elections for the very first Duma were f really um, extraordinary in terms of the, uh, the multinational uh, character of the first Duma. The Tsar, though, did reserve the right to dissolve the Duma, and he did this very quickly with the first one. Elections are held. They've restricted who can vote, who can participate a little bit. He didn't like that Duma either. either. He quickly dissolved it. Uh, he gets to the third Duma. That stays in place for five years. The fourth Duma was there at the time that the First World War starts and certainly in place at the time of the 1917 revolutions. So there has been, in the decade leading up to 1917, there had been a reduction in certain powers of the Tsar, but he still reserved the right to appoint all his ministers. He still um, held uh, the, the um, authority over many aspects of, of life within the empire. Um, but it was, it was weakened. It had been weakened in the decade before. He was trying to retrench by 1917, but the, the war changed just about everything. And is that what made the 1917 revolution possible? I mean, what were the factors that made it stick in mm -hmm. 1917? Um, it, it's, it, the, the war changed life in Russia dramatically. It, it led to um, shortages of food. It led to um, it really just some terrible military defeats, terrible military decisions. Um, and men were being um, called up um, and, and literally sent to the front line very, very quickly. They had gotten some training, but they were often ill-equipped. They were poorly fed. Uh, these shortages um, start to filtrate down to the urban areas, into the rural areas as well. So people were short of food. They were short of fuel. Um, labor was um, slowly eroding because men were being called up to, to serve. And so there's a continual sort of undermining of the state structures as a consequence of the, the, the failures uh, during the war. Uh, they just deepened over time. And when the, the Tsar is asked to abdicate in the February 1917 revolution, he does so relatively easily. He doesn't, he doesn't necessarily resist. The problem is then what, what starts next, what happens next, and that's something that these political leaders hadn't really accounted for. And so you then, from February until October, have competing interests trying to um, determine the future for Russia. I saw a shirt recently that said, 
America back-to-back World War champs, and I imagine the Russians might take issue with that framing of it. Uh, What was Russia's sacrifice like in the World Wars compared to America's? Oh, uh, it it was tremendous. Um, If we examine it from the context of the First World War, um, the United States was very much a late um, entry into the war. Um, We did not suffer nearly the number of casualties. In fact, the influenza epidemic was more dangerous than, than men fighting. That's not to in any way minimize their sacrifice. Um, the Second World War, um, uh, untold suffering um, in Russia. Uh, it's been estimated anywhere from 15 to 20 million people uh, died as a consequence of the war in Russia. Um, the the Russian people this day um, still, they, they feel that they're not, their sacrifice is not acknowledged. Um, all too often they feel that uh, there is this sentiment, particularly in Great Britain or in the United States, to, to ig- ignore their contributions to the war. But there's no question that Stalingrad was a turning point uh, in the East. What was the, very briefly, what was the lasting impact on the Russian psyche from that sacrifice? It was the high point of the Soviet Union. Um, that is the that is the, the period in which the the Soviet Union has has reached um, I would say its cultural its physical um, strength um, certainly the development of nuclear weapons creates a, a different sort of strength but that really that war became the singular thing that kept the Soviet Union together it was the one thing that they could celebrate collectively um, but by the 1960s those those feelings had started to erode to some extent. Let's get into the Soviet Union a a little bit. How, (laughs) this is a very broad question, but how did it happen that the U.S. and the Soviet Union became such bitter enemies? During the Cold War? Yes. Um, World War II and the alliance between the United States and the Soviet Union was one of necessity. Um, we did not share any ideological interests. We didn't really um, share um, global interests per se. And so as a consequence, um, if, if, if we didn't even recognize the Soviet Union existed until 1933. So from the time that the Bolsheviks took power in, in late 1917, literally until 1933, uh, the United States did not recognize uh, the Soviet Union. And so there was a red scare, in fact, in this country in 1919-1920, in which the the FBI and other security services went after um, what were called fellow travelers, communists, socialists, and others. Um, So there was this period, this this sort of pregnant pause of relations. But during the height of the Depression, we did recognize the Soviet Union. We exchanged ambassadors. We started trade. Uh, A lot of Americans went to the Soviet Union uh, to work. And yet, at the same time, that doesn't mean we abandoned our, our ideological hostility to, to the place. In fact, the Soviet Union kept calling for worldwide revolution, the overthrow of capitalist states, and these sorts of things. So World War II just gave a brief pause to the hostility that had already been there, because it was an alliance, again, of necessity. Um, but by 1945, as the Red Army was liberating Eastern Europe, we had certain expectations of what would it what would happen in Eastern Europe, the Soviets had very different uh, interpretation of what would happen there. It seems 
And correct me if I'm wrong, but Russia seems dependent on having an external enemy, whether real or invented. Uh, is that true? And if so, why? Um, I'm not sure. I understand what you're trying to say. I don't know that it's necessarily the need for an external enemy. Um, but if you think about Russia geographically, it has no natural boundaries, right? Um, the Ural Mountains are about it, and they're no higher than the North Georgia Hills, easily traversed. Um, but Russia does see as part of its strategic security uh, a degree of buffer um, around it. Uh, they call it strategic depth. Um, so I don't know that they necessarily need someone who is that that um, target, uh, that a, that enemy, if you will. Um, but you could argue that what they're constantly in search of is a degree of security because they don't have it geographically in any respect. And they do have neighbors who have seized territory from them. That's okay. They've seized territories from others. All right. Let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit about Russia today. So let's uh, talk a little bit about what's going on in Russia now and tying that history uh, to the present day. Um, what do you see as some of the defining characteristics of modern Russia? Oh, wow. Um, a large, powerful state that um, sometimes has ambitions that exceed its capabilities and what I mean by that is it's, it's still a, um, a relatively small economy given the, the size of the state, given the size of the country, um, and yet it is an extremely powerful state, certainly given uh, its nuclear arsenal. Um, it's um, an assertive state, uh, which is I don't mean that in any negative sense, um, but it is also a state that is still in many ways trying to discover its place in a post-Soviet world. Um, so that's, how, I think, how I define it. Okay, and the imperial times and communism seem like two extremes on a spectrum. How has the legacy of both of those systems in one, in one place affected the way Russia is governed today? Mm. Well, there's a tremendous amount of pride in the imperial past um, among uh, many Russians. I wouldn't say all. Um, and there's tr pride in that imperial past. Defeating Napoleon, for example, is something that they take pride in. Um, they take pride in advancing um, their civilization, bringing um, what they would regard as um, Russian culture, Russian uh, history, Russian uh, the Eastern Orthodox religion, and so forth, um, to unenlightened masses, whether in the Caucasus or Central Asia or certainly the, the, the peoples of Siberia. Um, so they do take tremendous pride in that past. They also take pride in, as we were talking about before the break, uh, their contributions in World War II. Uh, they certainly take pride, for example, in uh, having the first man in space, Yuri Gagarin. They take pride in the technological advances um, that existed. They take pride in their, um, 
the uh, equality of workers, the ideas that, uh, that they tried to espouse and export um, around the world. Um, and so th there, there are different elements to the pride uh, based on whether you're talking about the, the communist Soviet regime or uh, imperial Russia. But I would also suggest that they are confused in part about the past. There's a tremendous amount of nostalgia for the Soviet period, but it has more to do with nostalgia towards, I would argue, a, a society and a structure that, that they understood, particularly among a, a, an older generation, those who are maybe um, 50 or older. That's the world that was pulled out from under them. Um, you have to remember when the Soviet Union collapsed, there was no plebiscite. There was no vote. There was, this was not something where the people said, let's break apart the Soviet Union. It was 11 guys get together in Almaty, Kazakhstan, and sign a document saying the Soviet Union no longer exists. So in the 1990s, there was a lot of, uh, I would argue, confusion about what Russia is supposed to be. So they, they were seeking things to legitimize who they are. And so they would look back to both the Soviet period, but also to the imperial period to, to, to sort of reaffirm who we are as a great people. So what has the answer been to what should Russia be now? That's a, that's a great question because it's something that scholars are trying to understand. It's something policymakers are trying to understand. Um, there does seem to be some evidence to suggest that Russians uh, want to be respected by the world and do, don't feel that they are. Uh, for example, I have many Russian uh, friends who will tell me that every time you talk about the United States won the Cold War, that's an insult. We didn't lose. We, you know, our leaders took it from us. Um, so there's a sense that they are, um, are, are ignored. Um, there's a sense that they are not respected in the, in the world community. And yet they, as part of their history, as part of their culture, there's still this exceptionalist narrative that they have. Um, similar to, you know, in the United States, there's an exceptionalist narrative that goes along um, with our history. And so the Russians oftentimes feel that, that certainly in the 1990s, that the West f felt it could literally run over Russia without taking into consideration Russia's uh, sense of place uh, in the world as it existed at that time. That kind of leads me to my next question, the exceptionalism. When I was there, one thing that struck me was the way that America and Russia seem similar. They're both big countries. There was this I guess, manifest destiny idea, this just kind of endless space, natural mm -hmm. resources. And in Russia, that led to communism. And in the U.S., we got rugged individualism. How did that happen? It's another great question. And it, it, part of it, I, I would argue, is the, the communalism um, that existed. Oftentimes when peasants would leave European Russia to settle in Siberia, for example, um, they settled in communities that very much resembled what they had left behind. Whereas we have this image of the pioneer going out and getting his 160 acres and settling on the farm and very much that, that individual character that, that um, defeats nature to, to survive. Um, Russia, Russia, the Russians tended to go in these communities and form communities very similar to what they had left behind. Um, but at the same time, the, as these peasants would head east, the Russian government didn't want them to head east, certainly before 1861 and the peasant, the serf emancipation. So the, the state has always tried to restrict that movement, and the, the Soviet Union did the same thing. You literally had to have um, 
a community stamp to allow you to live in, in that, that place, for example. Um, so it's, it creates, um, in part, this, this, if you think about it, when Europeans came to settle in North America, they were taking a tremendous leap of faith that something better would be on the other side. When Russians migrated, they never left you know, ground. They were walking or riding a horse. So they never had that same sort of sense of going someplace new. It was a continuation. And so part of Russia's exceptionalism is this idea that they, the, the expansion and the colonization was part of uh, a gathering in of all the lands, that it was an organic growth. Um, Manifest Destiny creates a sense of also an organic growth, but it's a, a very different um, prospect of the people who are coming because if you look out into the, the, the Great Plains, it's being settled not by um, Anglos who, who have come to, to what becomes the United States, not by the many of the original settlers, but by the immigrants who are coming from a variety of different places, whether it's from Ireland, from Scandinavia, from Germany, and elsewhere. So they had very much uh, an individualism attached to it, but they often also settled quite frequently in their little communities, whether it's their Swedish village or their Norwegian village or their German village, and those sorts of things. So they were more dependent upon themselves in that community, whereas Russians were going along in a, um, an environment that was very much like what they'd left. It feels in some ways like the Cold War is coming back, and I say that as someone with literally zero life experience during the Cold War. Um, so I'll ask you, are Russia's foreign policies today an extension of the same Cold War mindset, or are we seeing something new unfolding? I, I don't, um, that, that's part of the debate, you know, what is, what is Putin's objective? Um, I don't think it's, um, a, a reinstating, if you will, of that Cold War mentality um, is much as in, in some degree, both the West and Russia are still reconsidering what, what this post-Soviet world, where you had these two bipolar superpowers, um, when that collapsed, you then had this unipolar world. Well, there's, there's a vacuum, there's a power that, that uh, is no longer there that needed to be filled. And I think that the, um, the current state uh, of, of Russia is in part filling some of the, the power vacuums, whether it's in the Middle East, whether it's uh, uh, in Asia. Um, so it's no longer that bipolar world. Um, but it also goes back to the, uh, the heart of you know, what Russia is, wants to be in a post-Soviet world. And that they're still trying to figure out, and we're still trying to figure out how to manage that. So how much Russia's foreign policy decisions today, I, I know that this is, it's a mix of both, but how does, how does it break down? Are those policies targeted more at, at cultivating power on the world stage or achieving certain outcomes domestically? I'd say it's a combination. Uh, Putin's extremely popular because he is reasserting uh, Russia and Russia's role in the geopolitical world and the international order. Um, it's also in part opportunistic, and Ukraine being one example, it's uh, opportunistic in Syria um, as well. Um, Russians will make the argument that they have le legitimate claims to be concerned about the West, that uh, in the 1990s the West trod all over uh, Russia. Um, and yet, from the Russian perspective, what they see is a West that is constantly expanding at the expense of Russia, whether it's the European Union or NATO. 
And so as a consequence of that, you know, the Russians, we see NATO as a benign defensive mechanism to keep the peace. That's not how the Russians necessarily perceive it. And so just simply saying to the Russians, oh, we're not here, you know, for any reason other than, you know, to keep peace, they look at Kosovo, they look at um, Libya, and they see a very, very different picture. And so it, it overcoming these these difficult perceptions of motivations is part of the uh, uh, foreign policy agenda of both the um, um, President Obama and and for uh, President Trump. What do you see as Putin's end game? What is he trying to do? Supplant the U.S. as world power? Um, I wouldn't say supplant, but to to re- return to a world where you do not have a unipolar power. Um, and which the argument has been that the, the, the West is dominated by the United States um, through these various institutions, whether it's NATO, the EU, and these sorts of things, um, certainly with uh, American power being on um, display in Asia as well, in, in Japan and South Korea. And so I, I wouldn't say it's to supplant the United States, but this is where Putin is really optimist, or, uh, optimistic, is uh, opportunistic, is that where he does see the vacuum he is able to assert some Russian role. Whether or not they have the long-term capability to do that is, is the question because the economy is still so heavily dependent on the energy sector, and it's taken a hit. Let's pivot toward some of your research. What current project are you most excited about? Um, I have a, a, a new book that will be uh, out sometime in February. It's a, a comparative study that uh, examines the uh, American colonization of the Sioux Indians and the Russian colonization of the Kazakhs. And that book should be out uh, University of Colorado Press sometime here in mid-November, I mean, uh, February. Um, and I'm pursuing other projects. For example, I'm a part of a, a, a um, it's a huge project. It's called Russia's Great War and Revolution. Um, the, the First World War was, in, in Russian scholarship often neglected, uh, in part because it's, uh, the, the revolutions suck all the oxygen, the intellectual oxygen, out of the room. Uh, and so um, three scholars came together about 10 years ago, a fellow named uh, Tony Haywood at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, uh, John Steinberg at Austin Peay uh, State University, and David McDonald at the University of Wisconsin. They started bringing together scholars from around the world and said, we want to re-examine Russia's Great War and its revolution. And so the, the, the books that I'm co-editing in that series deal with what we call the Russian borderlands, looking at how the, the Civil War uh, and the revolution played out in the Kazakh steppe, in Turkestan, in the Caucasus, certainly in Ukraine and elsewhere. And then uh, another set of books in that series that I'm uh, participating um, on is um, there'll probably be three books that looks at um, the influence of the revolution on a global scale. How was the revolution received in Argentina, for example, or the United States, or in Great Britain? Uh, how did it influence um, the, 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 the political ideologies? And then what were the consequences of that? So we have one scholar, for example, who's looking at Mexican film and its sort of celebration and its influences from the, the Bolshevik Revolution. So those are a couple of the uh, projects that I'm, I'm really excited about. 
If a listener's interest in Russia has been piqued by our conversation at all, and they would like to learn more, what would you recommend for them to pursue that interest? Oh, there are any number of uh, really marvelous books that are out there. Um, and the numerous, what I would call, uh, both news and information organizations. Uh, I'm an avid reader of foreign affairs, Radio Liberty reports. Um, you can uh, go on the web and you can read the, through translated forms various Russian newspapers. Um, Radio Liberty uh, broadcasts in Russian. If you know they don't know Russian, it makes it a little bit difficult. But uh, there are um, numerous ways to do it, um, to, to learn about Russia, to become informed. Uh, and um, you know, just read. But I'm an avid, you know, advocate of reading anyway. One last little question. What do you think, why does Russian literature have such a big pull in America? They're, they're master storytellers. Um, it's, um, for example, one of my favorite uh, novels all, of all time is still Anna Karenina, uh, because it's also a universal story. Um, you know, War and Peace can be a universal story. Um, Dostoevsky, um, they're dark in many cases, but um, they're just, they're master storytellers. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank I enjoyed you. it. I, I enjoyed it as well. Thank you again for inviting me. And thank you for joining me for this first ever episode of Southern Wonder.